joining us uh, for the first time today, we're, or, or if you've been gone for a few weeks, we're working through 2 Corinthians, and we are coming to a portion of scripture where Paul is talking about this gift, this fundraiser that he is orchestrating for the church in Jerusalem. Um, if you have been here in the last few weeks, you've, you've heard this summarized quite a bit, so we'll kind of glaze over it, not not too in-depth, but because we're in this part where Paul is speaking very practically about this gift that he's raising for this church, we are also navigating a, kind of a miniature series that's called Gospel Giving. That's, that's why, or Gospel Generosity, excuse me, that's why we are raising up this gift for Mary's place and, I, you know, just by God's anointing, uh, a, lot of, a lot of these components of today's service has been surrounding giving. Even that last portion of the catechism, right, was, you know, saying that we don't withhold uh, things that might benefit somebody else uh, is a way to uphold the commandment not to steal. Um, so today's sermon is entitled Giving Willingly, and we'll be exploring just that. So I'd, I'd like to pray again. I know we just prayed, but prayer is good. So I'd like to pray again, and we will just jump right into the passage. Lord, I want to thank you so much uh, for this opportunity, and we want to open this, this sermon time by just uh, praying what that faithful tax collector prayed. Have mercy on us. We're sinners. And to make it even more, um, more deliberate, I, I just want to pray, have mercy on me, a sinner. Pray that you would move within all of our hearts to be coming before you with that in mind. Um, not our own righteousness, not our own self-righteousness, but uh, recognition that we are sinners who have been saved. Or um, maybe for those of us who don't quite know you to that capacity today, Lord, we pray that you would gently and kindly walk us through how, how we fall short and how we're in need of a savior. Thank you for this morning. We pray for Justin as he's recovering. We pray for the whole Thomas household as all of them kind of come down with an illness. And I know that sickness is kind of going all through this church. So anoint anybody who's sick and bless the new babies who've been coming along lately, Lord. And we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses uh, 1 through 7. I'm reading out of the New King James Version this morning. It says, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, so that each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word of the Lord. Um, there, there is this part of the book, Out of the Silent Planet, 
where uh, the main character, Elwyn Ransom, is, is flying through space. It's a sci-fi story. And um, as he's soaring through the stars, something strikes him. And it's that there, there is something intrinsically wrong by the term that we use on Earth, of outer space. He says, this is not space. And he's surprised that every square inch of that which surrounds him is pregnant with matter and with deep particles and all sorts of things that he could never experience from the far uh, recesses uh, on Earth. Looking up at the sky, he didn't realize how deep and like he, the word he uses as pregnant is the space around him. The reason I bring that up is because with Christ, in Christ, we find that nothing is ever simple. Like Jesus Christ himself, everything is elaborate and complex, and the beauty of Jesus Christ lies in his complexity, in his intentionality, in his um, ability to make everything more so elaborate in wisdom and in righteousness. And it's the same thing with how he calls us to give. Now, we, we're coming to see in this passage that generosity with Christ is not just a simple transaction where funds exchange one hand to the next. It's deep, it's pregnant, it is elaborate, complex, and beautiful. The, uh, the, the first week that we studied this, we talked about how giving has to come from a place of love for it to matter. It has to begin with love. And indeed, we've received love from God, and in so doing, he's given to us the gift of salvation in the death of Jesus Christ. We've also seen that uh, by God's grace, any gift that we give is proportionate to what we have. God doesn't judge us for falling short in quantity. He just wants what, you know, what we have to give and what we're called to give. And last week, we found out that God wants us to have our giving be above reproach, and that there has to be um, and an understanding that the money is going to a place uh, of repute. And I feel like Heather really touched on all of these things as she was talking about her offering to Mary's place, even to that point that, it's, uh, that the managing of the funds that we give there are going to be above reproach and well-managed. This week, we are going to find out that it is important that our giving, our gifts, our charity is not from a place of begrudging um, you know, just unwillingness, but that it's the opposite. It has to be voluntary, and that, that it's very, very important to God. Um, Paul has a plan that we just read, and it's very, very practical, but it, the reason it has to uh, matter to us is because it surrounds this group called the Macedonians. And we talked about this a little bit. I'm just going to chime on the important bits. The Macedonians were from an area, a province, that wasn't quite as affluent and financially secure as Achaia, where Corinth was found. But when Paul arrived in Macedonia, he was telling them that Achaia, the province where Corinth is, has been ready and eager and zealous to raise money for Jerusalem. And the Macedonians were so inspired by the example that the Corinthians had set that they themselves raised so much money that Paul says in his words that it was even beyond their means. Now, Paul is coming probably from Macedonia through, second, uh, through Corinth, not second Corinth, but through Corinth, and he's bringing Macedonians with him. And he wants to, um, he wants to protect the Corinthians from that kind of pressure. He's bringing with him people that uh, have been inspired by the Corinthians, and he doesn't want them to feel overwhelmed. And we're going to go through that verse by verse. 
One, one thing that I also want to just kind of lay down, and I know this is a lot of just introductory particles, and we'll be picking them up throughout, is that giving always has to be from a place of love, like we said. I remember the, the first time I ever held my daughter in my hands. Um, it was totally impromptu, but I was holding her and I was looking at her eyes, and I just vocalized out loud. I said, I want to give you everything. It wasn't conscious. It's, it's just what came out. And it was an actual expression of, you know, this, this deep love that I felt for my daughter. And um, the, the fact remains that once we start begrudgingly giving, once the, the, the heart to, to give freely is relenting and cooling, it's a sign that the love has cooled and things have backed down. I mean, I, I had to apologize to my daughter several times last night because that kind of had happened. And I, I just want to leave you with that sentiment as we go into the passage, and you'll see how we'll pick up on that later on. So verse 1 says, Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it's superfluous for me to write to you, For and then beginning of verse 2, for I know your willingness. So Paul's been talking to them about the giving, the ministry of the saints for quite some time now. So for him to say that I know I don't have to write to you, it sounds kind of weird. It sounds like he's being insincere. And, and some people have even said that clearly Paul is being sarcastic. And I, I don't necessarily think that it, it means that. When he says that I don't have to write to you, I think he's meaning to say I don't need to explain to you what this is. I don't need to convince you. Um, he says that would be superfluous for me, which means extra. It'd be more than necessary. He says, because I know your willingness. Um, the New King James uh, translates this as, as readiness or willingness. Uh, other, passage, other translations translate this as eagerness, or the NASB, I believe, says forwardness of mind. Um, it, it's a Greek word that's a compound, and I, I don't know too much Greek or, or any at all, but I want to bring this up because this, really, this is really interesting. It's, it's a compound word that means forward, pro, and uh, thumia. It's from the word thumos, which means mind. But this word mind is actually uh, extreme deep passion. Any, anywhere else in scripture, or a lot of places else in scripture, this is translated in the negative because it's so severe passion. Usually this word is translated as indignation or wrath. So Paul is talking about such a deep severe desire that the Corinthians had that it was almost almost inappropriate because it was so heavy and so severe. Uh, it, I'd, I'd read an article several years ago that said um, chemically what happens in our mind when we see something that we find so cute, uh, chemically what happens in our mind is very similar to what happens when we're very, very aggressive and angry. And that's why when you see something that's cute, people say weird things like, oh, I just want to eat that baby up. And you're like, oh, that's not good. No. <laughs> and it's, it's because extreme passion is, is akin to indignation, which is interesting, even on a chemical level. And so this word means forward passion. Do you hear the movement of that, the trajectory, that the Corinthians knew that part of what Paul was asking them to do lied in the future, and they had such a passion of this forecast of bringing this to fruition, and Paul is calling upon that as he's writing to them. He says, see, I don't need to convince you to have this desire because I've seen you have this forward trajectory, this passion a long time ago, and he said that I've 
boasted about you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago. Achaia is the name of the province wherein Corinth is found. Um, Corinth's passion, this, this severe, almost aggressive, indignation-like passion, was such an inspiring thing that it moved the other churches in the world to get started and to be raising money for this Jerusalem church. And then the latter part of verse 2 says, And your zeal has stirred up the majority. Your zeal has stirred up the majority. This, uh, this term stirred up, again in the original Greek, is a word that's usually translated in the negative because it's so severe. It, it's usually translated provoked. And it usually bears the significance of somebody who has um, moves like a, like a revolution or rabble-rousing. But Paul is saying that your passion was so severely good that it provoked people to, to do good. And it provoked the majority of the churches. And Paul is uh, calling upon this passion that they've had. It's a high level of in intensity, a, a high level of enthusiasm the Corinthians had. So he begins with that. And then there's this weird passage that seems somewhat irrelevant to us because it's extremely practical. He tells them what he's going to do. This is uh, verses 3 through 5. It says, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Here's a potential problem. We've talked about this a few times. Paul went to Corinth before harvesting upon this fundraiser gift. And he's writing 2 Corinthians after that. So we, we come to believe that when he was in Corinth, he realized that the gift that they'd promised or that they'd even intended early on with this aggressive, intense passion was not coming to fruition. He was there. So maybe because of the complicated relationship, he, they were feeling towards Paul, they stopped, or maybe they just never got around to the will. But Paul is considering that maybe when the time came for the Corinthians to give this money, that maybe uh, it's, it's not living up to the passion that they had to begin with. It's, it's not about quantity, but it's about faithfulness. And this deep desire that they had was from God, and, and for them to not deliver upon that is for them to not be um, acting out in the love that they once had. Remember, we talked about how when things become mechanized and drudging, then it's the love has cooled. This indignation-like uh, motivation that they had early on has really started to smolder and go out. So this is Paul's concern. What if he comes to Corinth with all of these admirers? These Macedonians look up to the Corinthians for their generosity, and these Macedonians have raised so much money that when they come to Corinth, they're very, very excited about the generosity that they could see the Corinthians have provided, and then they come, and there's nothing there. So what might the Corinthians do in that situation? Well, one, in, chapter, in verse 4, Paul says, Lest some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. One, it would bring shame. And Paul has already expressed in in the area surrounding this passion that he, or this passage, that he doesn't want to coerce the church to be giving anything. He wants it to come from a good place, but, but if the Macedonians come 
and the church becomes ashamed, then this may be the jump off point of an offering that would, that would fall short of the, what the heart is supposed to be. What's interesting too is that Paul says that he would be ashamed of that. As, as a, a pastor over the church in Corinth and as he's been uh, proclaiming and boasting in their generosity, he himself would, would feel somewhat responsible for the Macedonians' disappointment in seeing Corinth. But he also says, you know what, you as a church, Corinth, you guys would be ashamed too. And so here's his plan, verse five. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and to prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you previously promised. Last week, Justin went through the verse where, where Paul talks about the, uh, the credentials of the men that he's going to be sending to, to Corinth. This is what they're going to do. They're going to come to Corinth before Paul and the Macedonians get there, and they're going to manage these funds. They're going to gather the money, and they're going to do it in somewhat of a vacuum. Paul won't be there. The Macedonians won't be there. So the Corinthians will have this opportunity to, to really gather their thoughts, gather their resources, and, and they themselves be able to, to make this gift in their own hearts. There's no pressure. There's no eyes that are kind of piercing through them over their shoulders as they, as they try to gather their money. Paul is creating this vacuum intentionally. And the reason he's doing that is so that way he can give the Corinthians the space they need to kind of recover, if you will, to give them the opportunity. So there's certainly wisdom in what Paul plans on doing. It's actually, it, it takes a lot of wisdom for him to foresee that it's a possibility that the Corinthians would be put in that situation. He doesn't want them giving out of pressure. But the, the, the point is, is that he's giving them the extra time because he's putting a huge emphasis on the willingness of a gift. He thinks this is so important that he wants it to be a, a priority component of this offering. Okay, so verse six. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Um, when it says, but this I say, that's actually added in for clarity. Paul just says, and this. And he starts, uh, he, he states this, and then he also states verse, verse 7, where he says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves his cheerful giver. What he's doing here is he's actually just adding um, evidence to his argument. When he says, and this, he's saying, you know, see exhibit A. See exhibit B, and exhibit A is he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It seems to be that Paul is alluding to a few passages of scripture. Um, one would be Proverbs 11, 24 through 25. Um, I will go ahead and read that. Actually, I got it here in my notes. It says this. One person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. And verse 25 says, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Paul is citing what he maintains is true. 
Remember Paul being being raised as as a Jewish man. He he holds these uh, these passages in the Old Testament to be evidence, to be truth. And he says, by principle, we have in the book of Proverbs that says, if you give freely, and obviously the implication is for the benefit of others, God will not let you outgive what you need. God will continue to compound and provide for you on a greater basis. But for other people who hoard misers who are unwilling to give even the things that they hold and are and have with tight fist is not going to be enough to provide for the very basic needs something supernatural happens to where that person will even come to poverty in the economy that god is orchestrating there's something mystical and supernatural that happens and uh, a generous person will prosper whoever refreshes others will be refreshed And so Paul seems to kind of be referring to this, paraphrasing. He says, he who sows sparingly will will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And obviously the the illustration here is is agricultural. And um, I've, I've heard people walk this out and say, like, it would be ridiculous for a farmer to say when he's sowing seeds halfway through, be like, oh, my goodness, I just realized I'm wasting all my seeds. I should keep these and take them home, and I, and I could grind up these seeds and make flour out of it, and that would, be, that would be ridiculous for a farmer to ever say that because the farmers, they throw out because they know that it plants and it germinates. And the truth of the matter is, even the very act of sowing seeds for the farmer is sacrifice because there's value in the seeds that they're throwing into the ground. And even not all of those seeds will bear fruit some of the ground where, where these seeds land are unfitting to yield a crop. And, you know, it brings to mind the parable of, of the sower, right, who threw his seeds and some of it fell on, on rocky soil and so on and so forth. Every, every farmer understands when he throws seeds, when he sows seeds, that some of it will go to waste. But they also understand the promise that some of it will find good earth and bear fruit and they will yield a return. And so what do they do is they recognize that I better sow sparingly. I better continue to give out. Because the, the, fewer, the fewer seeds that I sow, the less likely it is to find on good soil. Paul says, just as that's true with agriculture, it's a great illustration of generosity. Paul recognized that, as Jesus said, unless a seed dies, unless you sacrifice your seed, it's never going to come to anything, and it's only going to be worth exactly what it's worth. It's not going to give a return. Um, something also interesting is what Paul says, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's the way our English Bible has translated it, or at least mine. But there is actually an interesting preposition that Paul puts before this idea of, um, of bounty. The, a closer translation would be, he who sows from blessing will reap from blessing. It's, it's like Paul is, um, he's provoking this understanding for his listeners to say that, remember, what you're, what you're giving from is blessing. It's not from your earnings. You have been blessed, and so give from blessing. And recognize then that everything that we have has been received, and so we should be free to lend it forward as well. Verse 7 says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity. 
I, it's, it seems that Paul is alluding to another passage, and I want to read it to you. This is Deuteronomy 15, verses 9 through 11. It's, this is the law, and Moses says to the people, Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin." You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command to you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Um, let, let me explain what that passage is talking about. The seventh year is coming, the year of Jubilee. This, this was a time when all debts were canceled. So this is the context of what Moses is talking about. So he says, let's say it's the sixth year, it's toward the end of the year, and you see someone who needs, and you recognize that if you give to them, that just around the corner, they'll be let off scot-free. There's no return coming. And so what do you do? You refrain from giving to them. You recognize that they're unworthy because they can't give anything back to you. That it'll, your money will go to waste. You give it to them, and if you give it to them, they'll never give anything back to you. So God says, I command that you don't try to shrewdly box your way in how you're gonna be generous. If, if the year of Jubilee is coming around and you're not gonna get anything back, you should still give to your brother. And the important thing is this, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. It's not just a command to obey, it's not just a command to provide, but there's a command for the heart there. The motivation has to be from a place of willingness and not grudgingly. And here's, here's the grace of it. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. The promise, the grace of that is, yeah, this person will never give back to you. But the person who holds the books, the person who will return the debt is God himself. And that God will bless the generous even though the the, uh, the person who receives the benefit can never pay back. Um, and then there's the famous, for God loves a cheerful giver. This, the, I'm sure you've heard before, the word cheerful is uh, hilarious, and that is not how you pronounce it in Greek. You can be sure that it's anything but that. Um, but it's from, from where we could get the word hilarious. There's only one other place in scripture where Paul uses this, and it's kind of in the same context. He's talking about, this is in Romans 12, Paul's talking about how God gives us different gifts, and he says, you know, for example, if God has given you the, the gift of teaching, then teach with confidence, and, and eventually he gets down the list and says, if God has put you in the ministry of mercy, and that's a title given, you know, like, like what our deacons do. If your ministry is one where you help people are having hard times, he said, do so in cheerfulness. And that's, that's the only other place where this word is used. So apparently Paul feels that peculiar to the, the role of benef benefiting others, ministries of mercy, ministries of generosity, there should be this joy, this hilarity to it, this joviality. I don't, I don't know if that, that word is still in vogue, jovial. Um, jovial is kind of like, uh, has anybody seen Muppet Christmas Carol? Good, you should. And if you haven't, shame on you. Um, the, the, ghost, the ghost of Christmas present, right? You know, come in and know me better, man. No? 
No, okay. The ghost of Christmas present is this, is this giant. He's big and jolly. He's chunky and joyful. And this is joviality. And uh, this is the way somebody who gives should give. It, it comes from a place of overflowing capacity, overflowing joy. And so it's even ridiculous in how generous. And Paul says God loves that. Um. Paul is referring to a proverb there, and it's actually, interestingly enough, uh, you won't find it in in our Bibles, uh, because he's referring to Proverbs 22, uh, verses 8 and 9. I want to read that to you, and you'll you'll notice that it's not there, which is kind of interesting, and I'll explain why that is in just a second. Proverbs 22, verses 8 and 9 says, He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives his bread to the poor. Now, you read these passages, and you see that Paul must have had kind of this portion of Scripture in mind as he's writing his his passage in 2 Corinthians. You know, he uses this idea of sowing and reaping, and then there's this... um, He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives bread to the poor. The promise that even though, ironically, you're spending what you have, somehow you'll be receiving something back. And uh, there is a portion in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible, that is added in there. And as as our translators were translating from the original Hebrew, they thought that it wasn't originally there, so it it hasn't made it into our English translations. That's probably probably an okay thing. But uh, Paul refers to it because the Septuagint was still the the Bible that most of the people in the first century had read because it was the Greek translation of the otherwise ununderstandable Hebrew text. This is the way Proverbs 22, 8, and 9 uh, reads in the Septuagint. This is kind of like a direct translation into the English. He who sows wickedness shall reap troubles and shall fully receive the punishment of his deeds. God loves a cheerful and liberal man, but shall fully, uh, but man shall prove, surely prove the folly of his works. He that has pity on the poor shall himself be maintained, for he has given his own bread to the poor. He that gives liberally shall secure victory and honor, but he who takes away the life from them that possess it. It's super wordy. It's, it's hard to tr- translate things directly from one language to the next. But Paul is, um, he's depending on this passage. And you know, maybe it doesn't belong in scripture, but Paul is calling to something to mind that they, that they would know, that it have in circulation. God loves a hilarious, ridiculous, jovial ghost of Christmas present, which you guys don't recognize. Um, giver, that's what God loves. Uh, and, and that's the end of our passage. And it, to be honest, it's somewhat hard to exegete this passage because so much of it is just practical. It, this is Paul's plan for this immediate situation, this very specific situation, a situation wherein we won't likely find ourselves, right? We, we won't likely find ourselves in a situation where, you know, a missionary came and asked us to raise money, and then we said, yeah, we'll do it, and then he goes around and is like, dude, Calvary the Hill's raising so much money, and then, then he comes and we don't have it or something like that. that. That would be a very specific application of this passage, but not likely to happen. So why does this matter to us? This matters to us because of such an express emphasis on the heart behind giving. It's so surprising that in all of this passage where Paul is talking about this gift to relieve the church in Jerusalem, he really doesn't emphasize the quantity at all. 
he emphasizes all of these things that we would otherwise think are on the margins of gratitude. You know, where, where does this giving come from? Paul says it has to come from love. How much should we give? Paul doesn't say you should give this much. He says, just give from what you have. And, uh, and here, Paul says the heart is important. This willingness is so important, so much so that I will send extra people from my team to go ahead just so that way I can give you this vacuum space to provide for you this opportunity to work out your willingness. Notice that Paul doesn't manipulate the situation to get more money. And I know that so many people under the name of Jesus Christ have been guilty in realizing that they've manipulated situations for the bottom line of receiving the gift. And I want to get, I want to kind of borrow from Paul's index and use, use a word that's normally uh, negative, but to talk about something so severely good. Paul is manipulative in this passage. He's manipulating the situation, but it's not for something wicked, it's for something good. He's changing the parties, he's changing the schedules, also that way he can manipulate the situation to provide the Corinthians an opportunity to get their hearts right. He doesn't want them caught by surprise by a bunch of admirers so that in their shame they could gather up a bunch of money because if it's from shame, it's going to come out grudgingly. So Paul says, I want to do anything to make sure any situation happens but that. I don't care how much you give. I care about what the heart is behind it. See, Paul really cares about the Corinthians. He understands that this heart that they've been given is from God, and he also understands the economy on the heavenly level. He truly believes in he being an authority in, in the Old Testament as well as in the New. What he believes is, is truth, and we can, we can trust in its authority. Paul believes in this heavenly economy that if you give in this world, that you will receive in eternity. And of course, that's saying, that seems kind of gross, like, if, that, if that's, the, it's the, that's where the heart comes from, if you start because you're like, I want to receive more from God, so I'm just going to keep giving because it has good heavenly dividends. Of course, we've talked about that that's not where this has to come from. It has to come from love, but Paul still nonetheless believes that it's true. He believes it's true that if you give here on earth, then God will give back to you on a heavenly level. I'm going to give you another example of where Paul believes, um, expresses this. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he's talking to rich people. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Paul very much believes you give here on earth and you will receive in heaven. He doesn't want that to be the motivation, but he does say it's a reality and he calls it into this equation. And so Paul's trying to benefit the Corinthians. But, there, but here's the caveat. That is the way the heavenly economy works. If you give here on earth, you receive in heaven, but there is a chance that God can revoke that, that promised reward. Uh, this is Matthew 6. Jesus, again, is talking about generosity. Generosity, giving, has always been a big part of, of our faith, our history of faith, even back into Judaism. So Jesus calls upon this charity. He says, take heed that you do not, often, you do not your charitable deeds, uh, the word there can also mean alms, so it could, can mean a monetary offering, before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. 
Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. The caveat in the, in the heavenly economy is if you give from any place other than love, if you give because of the eyes of humanity, God will not return to you in, in the eternal places. And that's why Paul is trying to create this space where they can foster the right heart. Now, in the story here, obviously, Paul, or, excuse me, Jesus is talking about people watching and being impressed. Paul's, Paul's saying that a similar thing can happen if the Macedonians show up, but he's also saying, you know, people's eyes can be watching and you may feel pressured, but in the end, really, you're just giving for the benefits of the eyes of humanity, and that's not going to yield something in heaven. Um, Here's, here's, here's an important piece. God loves the jovial giver. He, he really does. He cares about the heart. And if, if you're giving from the wrong heart, he's going he's gonna to revoke that reward. And I want to, as, as, kind of as, as we're closing, this is kind of the latter portion of this, I want to call to mind the relationship between Jesus as the Son and God as the Father of Jesus the Son. Their relationship that they shared between each other was one of love. It was one of love, and we all know that. And, and you, can, you can ask, why does God love Jesus so much? And the answer is, well, because it's his Son, and it's, it's a very, very complicated, and there are numerous reasons why God loves him. But I, I would argue that in the Gospels, especially in the book of John, you know, and John is oftentimes called the apostle of love, there is this, this strange interconnection between God's commandments, Jesus' obedience, and the love that the Father has for the Son. Almost, almost seeming like a component, not the only component, but a component of why God loves Jesus so much is because Jesus was compliant to God's commands, and Jesus was obedient to God's commands. I'll give you a few references. John fourteen thirty one. I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So you see that the, the obedience is tied to the love. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Jesus liking his love to us to being similar to the way the Father loves him on a place of obedience. One thing's clear. God loves Jesus no matter what. One thing else is clear. God loves us no matter what, but there is something that really gels with God in, on, a very, um, on a very deep, endearingly level where God really vibes with us as his children and vibes with Jesus as his son, and it's when his, when his commandments are being obeyed. There's, there's one more verse, though, because this one more verse kind of uh, lifts the hood on this interaction between Jesus being obedient to God and his commandments. It's John 10, 17 through 18. It says, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have, rece- this command I have received from my father. Straight up, point blank, Jesus says, this is why God loves me. This is why God loves me. God loves me because my ministry here on earth is to be laying down my life for humanity. And the language he uses makes it clear that this is voluntary. Jesus has the authority to not obey what God is saying, but he says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down 
of myself. Other translations say, I lay it down willingly. Um, the New Living Translation says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. Tied into why God loves Jesus so much is because Jesus is not only obedient to his commands, compliant to God's commands, but in the end, it's out of Jesus' own volition. He chooses to give, chooses to follow God's commandments. You see, Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice to us, and uh, he did so out of, out of joy, out of joviality, out of eagerness to serve his Father. If you're a Christian today, remember Jesus did not lay down his life for you begrudgingly just because he had to, because there was this fundraiser that was coming on and his, his uh, participation of it meant for him to lay down his life and it was what God asked him to do and so he'll do it. He did it out of his own volition, out of his love. God never gives to us with clenched fists. Jesus did not give to us our salvation in clenched fists. He gave to us with open palms and pierced palms. We should sow sparingly, or excuse me, we should sow from bounty because we've re received bounty from God. We've received uh, so much blessing from God, and in the end, it's all from Jesus' own volition, out of his will. He desired, out of his love, to give to us. And so this is how we should give. This is how we can relate to our God in heaven because what he truly loves is a joyful, ridiculous, hilarious kind of giver because that's what Jesus is. That's what Jesus has been for us as our savior, not begrudging. When Jesus looks upon us as we receive his sacrifice, he does so in joy. If, if you're not a Christian today, Christian life is not about a system of commands and obedience, commands, compliance. There's so much more to that. There's every time you get going closer, you see that there's so much more intentionality, that everything is pregnant with complexity and beauty. And when we're here in this room, when we're talking about generosity, it's because we've received. We've received generously by God's grace out of his own will, joy, and love. And so, that, that's, that's our passage today. That's our sermon today, that God cares about the heart because he himself has given from a generous heart. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are constantly faithful, that you are compliant, that you follow the rules, that you keep your own law. Um, but a big part of it, Lord, is that um, nobody has given you the compulsion to be generous. You've done so willingly, out of joy, out of joviality. And uh, we receive out of desperation from you. And you so sparingly, knowing that for some, your seed will fall on rocky soil and not be received. But you, you so... Um, so openly that uh, we do receive your blessings out of your will and out of your joy. And as we give, as we give monetarily, or like Heather said, with our time, with our attention, or even with our prayer, our focus, I pray that we would do so in joy because you genuinely care about the heart. And we will receive return as we give, but, but only if, if the heart comes from a place of purity. 
And so uh, I just pray that nobody in this room would feel the compulsion to give to any offering to this church, to anywhere else, but that they would uh, have a joy and be sowing um, from bounty to receive from bounty. Thank you for the truth of your word, that your word is always good news. In Jesus' name, amen.